New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The great 4th century Taoist philosopher Chuang Tzu has said, Birth is not a beginning. Death is not an end. There is existence without limit. There is continuity without a starting point. Science is now beginning to include the legitimate arena of scientific research into the study of consciousness, inviting us to look more deeply into just what it is, and is there such a thing as the survival of consciousness after death? Is there a greater reality that exists beyond the reach of our narrow physical senses and our current scientific instruments? Are the gatekeepers of our academic and scientific institutions having to look more closely at the prevailing assumptions about life and death? Our guest today, Dan Drayson, poses the question, could a fresh review of what we call death transform our view of life for the better? Dan Drayson is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and has been a photographer and media producer for more than six decades, including operations manager of New Dimensions. He's the announcer whose voice you hear on each program. His short 1961 documentary film entitled Sunday was widely acknowledged as the first social protest film of the 1960s and as part of the permanent film collection at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Since the early 1990s, Drayson has been actively investigating the field of afterlife communication through traditional mental and physical mediumship, as well as modern electronics, as featured on his documentary film, Calling Earth. Dan Drayson is the author of A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. Join us for the next hour as we explore the objectively demonstrated scientific findings of the continuity of human consciousness beyond the physical body with our guest, Dan Drayson. I'm speaking with Dan from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Dan, welcome. 
Thank you, Justine. It's a pleasure to be on the other side of the microphone for once. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Here you are on the other side. And, yeah. and I'm just so delighted that you have written, given us a little thumbnail of the research that you've done on afterlife and all the people that you've talked to and all the findings you found. And so, first of all, I, I want to ask you, how did you even get interested in this research? What got you started? Well, some of it goes back actually to my early childhood when I had experienced uh, a number of precognitive dreams, dreams that in one sense or another came true within the succeeding several days, perhaps. And this kept happening to me. I, I didn't understand it. I soon found out I shouldn't talk about it. Uh, <laughs> the important lesson in it was that it taught me that, you might say, in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. Oh, nicely said. Yeah, that there are these, these realms beyond the, the, the obvious aspects of reality that, of course, our physical senses can perceive. Now, we know that science since since the renaissance has been aware that there's plenty that goes on behind the scenes of not obvious as, as i say to our physical senses but uh, coming into the modern era we find that science has sort of become ossified in becoming equated with materialism exactly and and dan please tell us just what is that um, scientific materialism what what is that it's basically a confusion between, well, let's put it this way. Science itself, science in its essence, is simply a method of inquiry. I call it organized curiosity. And it shouldn't be confused with materialism, which is an assumption about reality. We, we've, we, we tend to believe, or much of contemporary science believes, that matter is the only reality. Now, that itself is deceptive and short-sighted because we know that what we call our physical reality consists not just of matter. It's matter, energy, space, and time. And when you look at it that way, we see that the term, the very term materialism, reflects a bias toward the matter to the exclusion of the energy, space, and time. And when we start thinking in terms of energy, space, and time, our conception of reality, I think, gets freed up to some extent. Well, what about, Dan, what about the idea that scientists say, okay, that consciousness is created in the brain? Mm -hmm. That's like an example, I think, of what you're talking about. Is that true? <laughs> it's perhaps partly true in the sense that, obviously, our, our brains condition our consciousness. You know, an afflicted brain will produce distorted consciousness and so on. That doesn't mean that the brain is the source of consciousness. What's, what's becoming increasingly clear is that um, the brain is more of a tuning device, kind of like a radio, a two-way radio. And the concept of two-way radio, or the concept of any radio, would, would have been completely unthinkable, um, you know, 150 years ago. That what we call radio waves or wireless communication would have been considered the sheerest fantasy, would have been considered science fiction. But we know since 
Marconi in the 19th century that electromagnetic waves are entirely real. We can't see them around us, but as, as you and I sit here, thousands of radio and television broadcasts are passing through our environment and even our bodies as we speak. So this, this should give us a clue that um, limiting our notions of consciousness to, say, its physical vehicle, our brains, is a very limited way of looking at, uh, at this reality. And more and more scientists are being confronted with evidence that it can't possibly be true that the brain is, is the cause or source of consciousness. In some of my my presentations with my film, where I've done Q and A sessions, um, and people ask me about life and death and so on, and I say, "Death is nothing to worry about. We're already dead." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then you know you see the jaws drop. Um, but what what I mean by that is that um, when you look into consciousness, which appears to originate beyond the physical sphere, you you can you can experience life as consciousness looking through our eyes and through the sensory organs of our body. And uh, this in no way diminishes the reality of, of physical life, but it, it puts us, puts our being, as it were, closer to what we call the source. And perhaps closer to each other's consciousness and when you say the source to help us to understand what okay. your concept of the source is well one of one of the holy grails of science in, and physics in particular is finding you know the ultimate cause of things and what they tend to do is look at smaller and smaller and smaller particles um, as if particles uh, were the, were the source of reality and um, I think that's a little bit like um, assuming that uh, if you put enough bricks together, if enough bricks put their heads together, they could design a beautiful and structurally sophisticated building. And that's, that's what philosophers call upward causation, where, where sm the, the smaller is, is presumed to be the cause of the larger, and the simpler is uh, presumed to be the cause of the more sophisticated. Now that um, there's some value in that sort of analysis, but I don't think it can get very far. Certainly not much further than it is now, without taking a look beyond the physical. You say in your book that I just loved, and I wrote it down. You said, over the entire course of history, no particles of consciousness have ever shown up. So that when you're talking about the parts. But how do you find the parts of consciousness? Right. Well, you, you know, you can you can classify certain aspects of consciousness, but um, consciousness is clearly not constructed of particles. The whole the, again, the whole idea of particles presupposes a bias toward the idea of materialism. And exactly. Obviously, at this point in, in the progress of this research, we need to start looking beyond that. And it's not difficult because when you really when you start asking the right questions, you find that the most uh, appealing and effective answers come from this point of view that is beyond the material. 
Well, I, I know that there's something that I, I think I read in your book or even, or maybe your film, but it was the entire physical universe may itself be embedded in a more comprehensive matrix of a greater reality. And that's where that, that image of uh, those films, the matrix really kind of mm-hmm. helps us to sort of at least have an imagination that goes beyond just what we can touch and see and hear. Absolutely. Um, the the idea that's presented there, I think very in, in a wonderfully dramatic way is that frameworks of reality are relative. There may be multiple frameworks of reality. And uh, so you and I and everyone we know believe that we, we live in a, in a common uh, a common reality system. Uh, and I think that's true to a great extent. However, what you and I make of reality may be very different. We, we have different habits of mind, don't we? Right. And these may be uh, determined uh, culturally, linguistically. Um, and I, that's, in my book, I, pray, I place a great deal of emphasis on language. Uh, in that, you know, language, language comes out of our culture and it tends to reinforce uh, the presuppositions of our culture. Exactly. I, you know, I'm going to interrupt you for a moment, Dan, um, because I really want to get into that in depth because I know that that's an important point that you're bringing up. But I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dan Drayson. He's the author of A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, Dan Drayson. Dot com and he spells his last name D R A S I N dandrason.com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org I'm here with Dan Drayson, and he's the author of A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. And we're talking about consciousness and language in particular. This is such a great subject, and I know that you really talk about it in your book, and it's it's often used as a, a kind of filter or a, it puts a parameter or, or a frame around how we see our world. So talk about the importance of language. Well, chapter five in my in my book uh, is called Don't Eat the Menu. 
I love that title. <laughs> I love that. I said, it gives us such a visual of what you're talking about. Please go on and share with us what that means. Right. Well, the idea is that language only points to things, and it shouldn't be confused with the things themselves. If you speak more than one language, I think you'll understand that there are some things that are literally untranslatable. Experiences one may have may suit themselves to be described in one particular language, and they just don't fit another. I recently had a housemate, for example, who uh, was from Iran, speaks only Farsi and English. And I'm, I'm a, a language freak, and I love to, uh, in, in my own amateurish way, uh, read various European languages and try to translate them into English. And there, there's so many commonalities that it's not that difficult to do. But when it comes to a language that that is from a completely different language system, it's a very difficult, a very different and difficult process. Uh, you have to you have to kind of get into the mindset of that particular culture, see reality as it sees things and how it breaks reality down. And then work from that other perspective. So, uh, but e even uh, French is my second language, for example. Even learning learning French has put me into a different mindset about certain things because it regards culturally it regards certain things in different ways than than we in the English speaking world do. So that's where I'm coming from generally. And more specifically, uh, with regard to what we call the afterlife we're kind of stuck with a hodgepodge of uh, religious and scientific and, and repurposed terms to try to grasp this thing. And it, it, it's become a kind of a, a, a mess. <laughs> and I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping uh, in some of what I point out in my book uh, to unravel some of that. Uh, a, a very simple example might be we say um, somebody, nobody, everybody. We, we say that every day. But doesn't every time we repeat that, doesn't it reinforce the notion that we are nothing but our bodies? Oh, right. Yeah, then that, that starts to limit the frame right there because yeah. it kind of embeds it in us. We believe what we say or... You know, in some right. ways, you know, words have meaning, truly, right? is what you're saying, I think. Absolutely. So I've had some, this chapter is actually the longest chapter in the book is about, is about language and how it, it, um, how it affects our perceptions. And again, it, it tends to reflect back to us our own cultural norms and presuppositions. And I, I don't know if there's any way to avoid that, but I think being conscious of it is, is most helpful. And then I was thinking also, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just traveling, just getting out of the borders of our own culture. I, I always think that people who live in, in, let's say, Europe, maybe have a better facility than us in the United States. Our borders are so large, but we're a single language, so to speak. There are different dialects or different accents, but... Still, we're speaking the same language. Where you travel in Europe, people in Europe, they speak four or five languages. I mean, they just are traveling back and forth. I'm, I'm always struck by that and how that changes their consciousness as different from 
those of us who live in the U.S. I agree. And even if you're, you're not philosophically inclined, subconsciously, when you are multilingual, I believe your mind processes information in a different way. Again, getting back to the question of, of an afterlife and, and, and terms like materialism, there is what is now emerging uh, in, in some branches of science, uh, the notion of post-materialism. Uh, oh, I post-ma- like that term. This uh, is a good one. Right. It, it's, it's, it's useful. Um, it's not too restrictive. It's simply saying that um, you know, materialism is all well and good within, within what it can describe. It doesn't deny but materialism. It doesn't, no, it doesn't deny anything that, that science has discovered with its, with its materialist focus. Just saying it's not enough. Not enough to describe reality as a whole. So, coming back to language for a moment, post-materialist thinking invites us to invites us to take a fresh look at language, how it influences what we take to be reality, and what possibility it forbids or permits us to consider. So once we have loosened up our minds a bit, um, whether around the question of language or, or in whatever way, I think we're better equipped to at least begin to ask the right questions about reality and and about consciousness, which is of course the next frontier um, right. in 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 uh, science. Um, I mean science is advancing on many, many fronts. And by the way, I think one of the most wonderful aspects of materialist science has been astronomy. And not so much because of the particular discoveries it's making but by the speed at which it has to change its mind and open its mind about the, the questions that it's going it's obviously concerned with you know the birth of the universe how did this all come into being um, but even just it's it's more sophisticated instruments like the, uh, the the various space telescopes have not just provided new information but i think it's also helped open our minds and also illustrate that science is a process. It's not a dead end. Right. It's not a, re- it's not right. a religion. Dan, I wanted to ask you then, uh, science as a process, and about asking new questions, which I think are just, these are really important ideas, I think, for our everyday life, actually. There are what we would call skeptics, those people who are genuinely skeptical. And then you call it something about pseudo-skepticism. So this has to do with asking new questions. So describe the difference between a genuine skeptic and a pseudo-skeptic. Well, thank you. Um well, this this has been another favorite subject of mine. <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful website called skepticalaboutskeptics.org. Uh, it was originally, um, it was founded by Rupert Sheldrake years ago. And basically, it takes a fresh look at skepticism. It includes an essay I wrote some years ago called Zen and the Art of Debunkery, which... <laughs> It's, um, it's, it's, it's a long essay. It's almost a book in itself. 
and with with tongue in cheek, it takes a look at some of the excesses and and um, paradoxes of what's come to be known as as skepticism. You know, if if you've if you ever watch TV or switch on your computer, sooner or later you will see um, so-called skeptics trotted out to, um, to to tell us the truth about all these weird things like afterlife research and so on. Um, but these are these are not this, you know, this genuine skepticism is, is simply um, it's part of the structure of organized curiosity. It's let's take a second look at things. Let's not accept things on face value. Let's really look into them deeply. But what pseudoskepticism does is it, it takes the position that science has already had the last word. It has a fixed position about things. We have, we have achieved absolute knowledge about X, Y, or Z, and that's how it is. And so anything that seems to go beyond that is automatically assumed to be uh, 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 illusory or false um, or, or a matter of, of a mistaken identity, one thing or another like that. So it's th- this attitude, I think, has, has held things back tremendously in, these, in this whole area of new science. Well, that reminds me, you, you say being curious. So here we are being curious, let's say, and you've mentioned several times, and, and your book really is, is highlighting the idea of consciousness going on. There is an afterlife. There's something that's occurring. And there's a lot of research on that. So um, I, I would like to know, like, okay, how do we, how do we include the afterlife and what name like some piece of research that has talking about being skeptical that is starting to erase the idea of being skeptical that consciousness does go on. So what what comes to your mind right now is something that really impressed you that said, oh, got your attention and say, <laughs> wow, this one I, I want to look into more deeply. Well, thanks. Um, first of all, let me um, express some of my own skepticism about the term afterlife, which may be misleading. Um, it kind of smacks of, um, well, our physical life is the real reality. And the afterlife is sort of like the, the tail pinned on the donkey, you know, this little afterthought. Right. Um, so I think the, ter- the very term afterlife uh, can be misleading. Even some people, like some religious organizations, would tout the fact that this life doesn't mean much and everything is going to happen wonderfully in another mm-hmm. life. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Well, I think that there actually may be a little bit of, of truth in that, in the sense that if we look at the, the greater reality as being a wraparound, being wrapped around our physical life, before, after, and in whatever other dimensions exist, um, we, we can see our, our physical life as perhaps a, a subset of a much greater um, construct in consciousness. And that doesn't minimize its importance. Uh, and, and obviously, physical life gives us certain parameters and certain disciplines, time, space, 
the nature of our bodies and so on, um, that, that focuses us on certain challenges, certain kinds of knowledge, certain kinds of experience that we can only get in this, in this more focused or constrained framework. Um, but that, that's not the whole picture. Very that's clearly not, not the, the whole, whole picture. picture, is it? Right. I'm here with Dan Drayson. We're talking about consciousness and curiosity and life beyond the physical. He's the author of A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dan Drayson, and Dan, I, I wanted to ask you, in the reports of life beyond our physical life, so I'm not going to call it afterlife, I'm going to, because <laughs> we've just talked about, maybe that's a misnomer, but where is it located, Dan? Uh, <laughs> what, is it close by? Is it far away? Where is it located? That's, the yeah, question comes from part three of my book. Yeah, right. Uh, and the, the chapters there ask about the afterlife. What's it made of? Where is it located? How does it work? What's it like? And what's it for? So um, where it's located is almost the simplest one to answer. And I would ask you, where is Channel 4 located? <laughs> on my television. <laughs> well, right. it appears to be located oh, right. it shows on up your there. television. It shows up there, but we know that the little people we see on the screen are not physically located inside the, the TV set or, or the computer. So the, the whole idea that there can be uh, realities which um, suffuse the entire space around us and beyond us is not new. There's nothing, nothing especially, especially exotic about it. Um, and that, um, I think those who have looked into this question tend to agree that the, the so-called afterlife and everyone and everything in it constitutes a sort of a grand, you might say an oceanic hologram made of consciousness itself. And that means that it has no fixed parameters. That is, it is self-defining. That's inherently creative. And that we, that in one sense or another, we all participate in. And, um, again, our, our physical lives are a, a kind of a, a condensation, you might say, or a subset of that reality, purposeful, but it ain't the whole picture. So some people would call that we're we're the wave, but we're in the ocean. We're not separate from the ocean. Right. Um, we might say that that what we call a soul, if if consciousness as a whole is is analogous to an ocean, um, we might say that a soul is is analogous to say a surfer's wave. It has form to it. It has endurance to it. 
and it has identity, even though it's not separate from the ocean. Yeah, this gets into the question of distinction versus separation. That's another big, one of the greatest semantic issues in this whole field. What what does distinction mean? What does separation mean? Now, in in terms of the, uh, the wave, the ocean and the wave analogy, obviously the wave is not separate from the ocean. It's distinct from the ocean. If you can visualize the ocean as sort of a calm surface, the wave is there. It's distinct, but it's not separate. You know, this reminds me, Dan, of what they're discovering. You were talking about the telescopes and and looking into astronomy. This reminds me they're discovering that space is not empty. It's not empty between, let's say, our planet and our moon or, or our galaxy and the next galaxy. Space is cluttered with all sorts of things that we can't perceive with our, our our eyes, so to speak. Right. And it's it's the same idea that, you know, we're sitting here and all these radio and TV broadcasts are, are, are going through us as we speak. Same general idea. So you're saying that like this life um, beyond our physical life is is surrounding us. It's it's part of the soup that we're all living in. And uh, I I think that you mention in your book the reason like we don't see it or touch it or feel it with our physical senses is that it's actually vibrating on a higher frequency. Am I getting that correct? Yes, that, that's the that's the basic idea that um, matter vibrates at, at a relative, relatively speaking, a lower frequency. The um, in my book, I actually provide the numbers for this. The vibration of, say, uh, piano notes on the piano, which are relatively low frequency, and um, uh, beyond that, there's the vibration of matter itself. Uh, an oxygen molecule, for example, vibrates at uh, so many millions of times per second. Visible light operates at trillions of vibrations per second. So what's beyond that? And what's to think that that, that it stops there with, let's say, light? I mean, why exactly. not? I'd like to get into a little bit about some of the research that I know that you've done, and some of it is in your film, uh, Calling Earth, is electronic voice phenomena. So this is like one of those things that says, hey, something else is going on. And there's one in particular that I remember that just really impressed me. And I may pronounce his name wrongly, but Constantine Raudava. Uh, who died in 1900, and he got in contact with someone named Mark Macy, who was working as a researcher at the Institute for Theory and Computation. This was amazing to me, this this man who had died before was giving him, Mark Macy, all this information. Here's what you need to do. To contact me or to to have further conversations or clearer conversations, please describe this to me. I got really excited about it, Dan. <laughs> well, um, just just to provide a general introduction to to what's called instrumental transcommunication, 
this is basically uh, communication from the other side through electronic instruments. It started uh, back in the 1950s, actually, when tape recorders became consumer items. And um, some people now and then uh, heard faint voices on their recorded tapes that did, didn't belong there. And uh, at first, this sort of thing was dismissed as, well, maybe the recording machine is picking up a radio broadcast or something. And generally, in the United States, the whole thing was dismissed. But in Europe, a few researchers began to become fascinated with this, this uh, phenomenon. It started out with a man named Friedrich Jurgensen, who was well-known in Sweden at the time. He was a, a, a documentary film producer and an artist and an opera singer, a multi-talented individual. So one night in the, in the 1950s, he went out with a recorder, a tape recorder, to record nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was producing. And when he played back the tape in the silent periods between the nocturnal bird sounds, he heard faint voices discussing nocturnal bird sounds. Now, <laughs> he thought this was quite a coincidence. Uh, that perhaps his recorder was picking up some radio discussion. But then not long long after that, um, he heard on a tape the voice of his deceased mother calling him by his childhood nickname, mm. Riedel. And um, this actually turns out to be a pattern with people who start experimenting with what's called the electronic voice phenomenon. It's a subset of instrumental transcommunication. Uh, very often they'll hear a, a deceased parent calling them by their nickname. Uh, and this is quite evidential because it's something that very few people would know. Uh, Jurgensen began to experiment then. He, he, he said this, uh, you know, this, this deserves to be re um, researched scientifically. So he would roll his tape, he'd ask a question, pause, ask another question, pause, and so on. And when he played back the tape, in those pauses where there should have been nothing at all, he often heard um, voices responding to the question, specifically to the question he'd asked. He was then visited by this um, uh, Latvian psychologist named Konstantin Raudova, who worked with Jurgensen for a while and then went off and did his own experimentation. And when he passed away, which was in 1974, actually, he this is Which one passed away? This is Raudova. Konstantin okay. um, he had record, recorded between 60 and 70,000 of these voices. Wow. He had published a book and a phonograph record that contained um, a number of, of the examples of these voices. And basically, he, is, he and, and others at the time, uh, for example, Ernst Senkowski, who was a prominent physicist in Europe, as an, was, was another one of the... Um, more outstanding practitioners and researchers in this field. Um, these people essentially established that um, voices from the other side can come through our electronics. And whether it was purely a physical phenomenon or not, um, how exactly it worked, um, we still don't know. It may work in different ways. It may depend on uh, to some extent, on the phase of the moon. Who knows? Um, we know that it does depend to some extent on whether we have an emotional connection right. with someone on the other side. I think in the in the film, you even uh, talk about how going back to Jurgensen, who lived in Sweden, 
who died in 1987, when he died, he some friends of his who lived 250 miles away had the intuition to turn on their television right then. And he appears on the television screen and they took a Polaroid of it. I mean, so it's actually documented at the time of death, he contacted them. It, it, that was an amazing moment. Right. Well, he predicted uh, during his lifetime that um, that that uh, images of the deceased would soon start to appear on television screens, and a number of experimenters have have achieved that sort of thing. You'll see some of that in my film. Um, but you know, Jurgensen made this prediction, and uh, as you described. Um, his his friends did um, manage to capture a photo of this this image that appeared on TV. Now, the interesting thing about some of these images of the deceased is that they are not photographically literal. They're they're like works of art, and they're as if they were mental projections. Um, that didn't get all the details quite right. I mean, this image of Jurgensen is clearly him, and yet the facial proportions and so on are are not quite realistic. Um, I visited, uh, and which you'll see this in my film as well. Um, I visited a, a gentleman in the Netherlands in 2014 who can produce these these photographs of deceased individuals on anyone's camera. You can hand him your own camera. And he will just point it at the wall and knock off a few shots. And very often you'll see images of, of deceased individuals. When when I did this experiment with him, which I controlled very, very tightly, um, he produced two images that resembled Friedrich Jurgensen in his later years. Oh my goodness. And again, oh. they were they were not photographically literal. Um, but they were Jurgensen for sure. Oh my goodness. So I want to remind our listeners, we're listening to this fascinating conversation with Dan Drayson. He's the author of A New Science of the Afterlife, Time, Space, and the Consciousness Code, and also the producer, uh, the filmmaker of the, the documentary movie called Calling Earth. So I recommend that highly. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dan Drayson, and we're having a fascinating uh, talk. He's sharing information about 
these communications. And we mentioned earlier the communication from Konstantin Radova, who died in 1974, was it, Dan? Yes. Yeah, yes. 1974. And he, he communicated with Mark Macy, who is someone who's a researcher in, what is it called? Instrumental Transcommunication. Communication with the other side through instruments. Right. Or ITC for ITC. for short. Okay. Right. So what was their communication? Well, um, Mark Macy, who lives in, in uh, near Boulder, Colorado, has been a researcher and writer in this field for some time. And um, one day, some years ago, he was um, he initiated an experiment um, using very low frequency um, radio waves. So he's sitting there in his office one day, and the phone rings. And it's Konstantin Radova, who was on the other side, calling to give him some technical advice about the experiment he was doing. Now, at the time, he had no way to record the call. So we, had, we have no evidence of that first phone call. And Mark soon um, installed a recording system on his phone line and uh, recorded this conversation with Radova, which you can hear parts of in my film calling earth and it contained exact precise instructions as to how mark was to refine his radio experiment uh, he also got into other questions that are apparently of concern to folks on the other side uh, like um, the state of our world today politics um, things like violence and drugs and so on the, the whole sociological spectrum of what's happening on our planet Radov is quite amazing. He mo most of these communications from the other side are uh, last um, only a a short a short while, maybe five ten seconds. Most of them are less than two seconds long. Radova has been able to maintain these communications over a span of several minutes. Amazing, which is which is quite amazing, and you'll you'll. And you'll, Dan, you'll, you'll hear several examples of this in my film. Exactly, Dan. Didn't he give? some very specific information about, okay, set up the antenna this way right. and do this and this. I mean, that right. just blew uh -huh. my circuits <laughs> right. for sure. Right. Right. Uh, so that, that was very helpful. But I, it leads me to the question, Dan, those of us who are not technical in our ability, but can, can we do experiments with this ourselves? Do do you suggest that we can we can find out things directly? We can ask questions of people we want to contact. Sure, and and there are quite a number of people who do this regularly. Uh, in in my film, you'll see um, Vicky Talbot lives up in Washington State. Uh, her son Braden was uh, unfortunately killed in a kayaking accident in uh, two thousand one. And uh, in the film, you'll hear a number of samples of the communication that they've had since then, um, starting with uh, cassette tape recorders, telephone answering machines at the time, and more recently through um, uh, digital recorders and uh, recording apps on, on mobile devices. Uh, the technology itself doesn't seem to be critical. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you use. As long as you have the intention and the patience, sometimes this does not develop right away. It will depend, obviously, on whether those on the other side are, are want to talk to you 
because they, they may or they may not. Um, they have other concerns as well, apparently. Uh, but for many people who have who have put the time and effort into this, uh, and who have, particularly those who've had um, a loved one on the other side that they can relate to emotionally, this seems to be this emotional bond seems to be a very important ingredient in this communication, and not always, but often. So the bottom line is that um, many people have been have been doing this practice for quite a while. And you can you can hear some of the examples of this so-called electronic voice phenomenon online. Uh, and in my book, I provide some links uh, where people can go and and uh, and hear and see more about this. What if I put put together uh, find dig out of my archive someplace an old um, cassette tape player, let's say, <laughs> and, and would that be like I would just turn it on and i would i would ask maybe first do a meditation and try and contact in psychically someone i want to contact and then turn on the tape recorder and just ask a question and let the tape run and see if something happens that's how a lot of people have gotten started with this you may or may not get results right away and some people get no results at all others get plenty of results and sometimes they happen very quickly Right. Persistence. And also, uh, it's been recommended that um, you do this practice at the same time every day, repeatedly for a period of time. And that that establishes a sort of a pattern of regularity that some people think can be helpful. Um, and yes, uh, it's good to to meditate, to be in a quiet place, and, um, and to welcome whatever communications come through, for starters. Uh, sometimes people will, will just get... Um, uh, sounds, noises, and so on that shouldn't be there, and then that will evolve further into uh, voices, and um, and into eventually into contact with with your loved one on the other side. Again, nothing is guaranteed. We don't know under we don't understand why these things happen when they do, but there's certainly an abundance of evidence that they do happen. Well, that's I, I would recommend people watch the film, and you'll see. And and hear some of this, and and it might um, really encourage us to to par- be participating in this. You know, Dan. One thing that I I don't want to leave our conversation without asking something that I think um, many of us have heard about and have a an interest in, and that is um, our soul group. And what have you learned? Because I know you you say a little bit about this in your book. Uh, what have you learned about our soul group? And are, are we part? Is our soul part of a group? Well, this this is something that in which my own understanding is still evolving. As I understand it, at this point in time, um, we as souls are are members of um, communities just as we are uh, in, in our physical lives, um, that um, there are some communities of common interest, of common orientation to life, that sort of thing. That there may be um, a soul group of which each of us is a part, almost like leaves on a tree branch. That in some sense, our, our consciousness originates in a particular stream. Other souls, uh, as I understand it, uh, actually travel among these groups, uh, gaining gaining knowledge and wisdom 
from from their contact with with souls of, who have different sensibilities, different involved in different cultures on the earth, so on and so on. Um, it's, I think this is a huge um, area of potential research. Uh, I don't know if you remember Michael Newton's work. He was a, a, a hypnotherapist who, who started back in the 1970s and discovered that uh, in deep hypnosis sessions, many of his clients started reporting experiences from between lives. So that's a whole area of research called right. Life Between Lives. Right. Uh, his his classic book was called, uh, Newton's first book, and it's kind of a classic, it's called Journey of Souls. And it includes transcripts of recordings that he made of his clients uh, describing their, their personal experiences between lives. And this includes um, coming into contact with their soul group. And it's interesting that the... Uh, the reports that, that he has recorded from, from his clients, I have a, a, an interesting consistency about them. But they, they speak of a pattern or, or a progression of experience in the afterlife. Um, and this is what we hear as well through um, people who are professional mediums, uh, that, that there is, that there is a, a sequence of development in the afterlife, just as you might uh, look at uh, developmental psychology in, in our human realm. Right. Right. Um, that that uh, when we first pass over, we're in a particular state of consciousness. That we grow from there into a more, um, to a broader and more comprehensive mm -hmm. sense of reality. Mm -hmm. And um, this is. Um, I wish we had five hours. I know. I know. <laughs> to, we could. To, well, to I, I just want to end up because we are running out of time. If there's anything that you can say, how has this researched? change you i think the best answer is that it's still changing me <laughs> that uh, everything i i i continue to learn about this this greater reality um has an effect on my own sense of identity you know who who and what are we really um are are we masquerading as humans um these questions like this keep keep occurring to me uh, I ask myself, what is the veil that separates um, uh, our our world from that world? To me, the veil is just our physical senses, which are very restricted in in the the slice of reality that they can that they can register. So um, there's this huge number of questions that this opens up, and I'm having great fun exploring them. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful, Dan! I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's just been my honor and pleasure to have you as a co-teammate of New Dimensions <laughs> and your whole other field of endeavor be that goes way beyond the work that we do. Thank you so much. I've been here with Dan Drayson, the author of A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. And if you want to know more about his work, oh, he's also the filmmaker, Calling Earth. And you can find reference to this on his website, dandrason.com. And he spells his last name D-R-A-S-I-N, dandrason.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3789. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners.
You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.